Let's turn to Job chapter 40 as we give our attention to God's word this morning. Job chapter 40, we're going to be starting at verse 6, and then we're going to go through the end of chapter 41. So Job 46 through 4134. So first let's go to the Lord and pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want you to reveal the true meaning of this passage to us. Father, first and foremost, we want to understand what this portion of your word is saying to us. Father, give us the ability to understand and to learn and to apply this to our lives. Father, show us your Savior, Jesus, from your holy and inerrant word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to walk into an average coffee shop and order a small or medium drink, you would probably get something that has one shot of espresso in it, which has around 90 to 100 milligrams of caffeine. That's a nice little pick-me-up. That, that ought to do the trick. But if you want something a little stronger and a little bigger, then you could get a large, you know, a large specialty drink at a regular coffee shop would have two shots of espresso, probably a minimum of about 150 milligrams of caffeine. But if you want something even stronger or bigger than that, you could get a large Americano. Now, Americano is uh, espresso with hot water poured on it to fill, to fill the cup. So if you were to get a large Americano, that would have three shots, about 225 milligrams of caffeine. That's a lot, that's a lot of caffeine. But if that's still not enough, and you want something bigger and stronger, you can get, at some places, an extra large. An extra large has, yes, four shots of espresso and 300 milligrams of caffeine. Now, why anyone would need that amount of caffeine delivered in one drink, I, I do not know. But this is America, so we can, and we do. Now, the only way to get something stronger and bigger than that is to forget about coffee, run down to the local gas station, walk back to the cooler, and there is a certain energy drink that sells a 32-ounce can and has a whopping 320 milligrams of caffeine. Now, again, why, why would we even need that? Someone, the reason is this. Someone is always looking for something that's bigger and stronger than everything else. And those sell. They're, they make those and they sell those. It's because people want something bigger and stronger than anything else out there. When it comes to our salvation, we need God because he is bigger and stronger than anything else out there. God is bigger and stronger than we are. God is bigger and stronger than our enemies. And our enemies are very big and very strong. God alone is able to defeat death and the devil. Those are our two biggest enemies. But God is bigger and stronger than both death and even Satan himself. 
In God's last speech to Job, God addresses the charge of injustice. This is God's second answer. This is why we're not going to break up chapters 40 and 41. They go together. It's one answer. It's answer number two. In chapters 40 and 41, God makes it crystal clear that he alone is able to administer perfect justice because he alone is able to be both death and the devil. As we read this, this is one answer, and this is the final God speech in the book of Job. So here's Job 40, starting at verse 9. Or excuse me, starting at verse 6. Then Job answered, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look upon on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the locust plant he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the locust trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is, not, he is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will, you make many, will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him, remember the battle, you will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false, he is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silent, silence concerning his limbs, or his mighty strength, or his goodly frame. Who could strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who could open the doors of his face around his teeth as terror? His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no error can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezing splash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. 
He breathes coal, kindles, his breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. They crash it, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On, on earth, there is not his life, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. This is God's second speech. If you remember from last week, that was God's first speech, and he answered the question of mismanagement of the world. God, God alone is able to run the universe and he gave us a holistic answer. We're not going to review that right now because we're turning to his second speech. Yet, in his second speech, God is still speaking to Job out of a storm theophany. Remember, a theophany is a visible manifestation of God, and in this case, it's a storm. It can also be translated as a violent, wild, uncontrollable storm or tempest. God tells to Job to ready himself, dress for action, literally gird up his loins, which means get ready for battle. If somebody's thinking, wait a minute, this sounds very familiar. You're right. This is, in fact, exactly how it started with the beginning of the first answer that God gave. In fact, if you compare chapter 38, 1 and 3, and chapter 46 and 7, they are identical. That's a literary technique designed to show us this is the second answer. The first answer started this way. Now we're on to the second answer. And it's starting the exact same way. It's a marker. It's a division. It tells us we're done with the first answer. Now we're going to the second answer. So the second answer is answering the charge in verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Are you, Job, going to accuse me of injustice? Are you sure? Is that, is that where you want to go, Job? I have an answer for you. I have an answer. Has Job accused God of injustice? The answer is yes, he has. Sporadically, throughout the earlier chapters, Job has, from time to time, crossed a line and implied that God has committed injustice. God has somehow mishandled Job's case, and, and he's not treating him fairly. For example, Job 9.15. These are the words of Job. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. You hear that? Without cause. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Likewise in Job 9, 32 and 33. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him. That we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on both. Job wanted justice. That's what he's been crying out for this whole time. If only I had my day in court, then I would be proved innocent, although I may have to bring some kind of arbiter in between just to make sure everything's on the up and up and fair, because right now it doesn't seem like I'm being treated fairly. I want justice. And 
what he was doing, of course, was implying that God was unjust. God is answering that charge. And his answer can be broken up into three parts. Number one, God alone is able to do the things that God does, namely administer perfect justice. That's the first section. And then number two, behemoth. And number three, Leviathan. All part of the same answer. So we're going to break this up into three sections. Number one, I alone am able. This is verses 9 through 14. God, God alone is able to administer perfect justice. He is the only one big enough. He is the only one strong enough. Verse 9, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Which, by the way, he's speaking out of what? A strong theophany. So even as he asks this, his voice is literally thundering at Job. Have you an arm like God? Arm means power. Job, are you powerful enough to execute justice like I do? Are you able to thunder and pronounce sentence on the guilty? So the primary focus of administering justice is, is the punishment and the, and the calling to an account and the, the rendering of, uh, of final judgment upon the wicked, upon evil, upon those that stand against God. Can you do that? Of course, the answer is no. Verse 10. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. So God is encouraging Job to take his role. Why don't you do this yourself, Job? Take my glory and splendor upon yourself. Give it a try. Oh wait, you can. You're not able to do that. And verse 11 through 13 is more of the same. God is sarcastically encouraging Job to things that he's not able to do. Job, you accuse me of injustice? Okay, you're not even capable of administering justice. How can you sit in judgment over me? How, how can you claim that I am acting unjustly? So 11 through 13 is all a lot of the same language, asking the same question, can you pour out judgment on the wicked? Are you able to administer perfect justice? Can you bring down all wicked men? Can you bring down uh, the demonic forces? Can you bring down Satan himself? And of course the answer is no, you're not able. Job does not have the power of God, nor does Job have the wisdom and knowledge of God to execute perfect justice. He is not able. He's not big enough. He's not strong enough. Job does not know how God is going to be both just and the justifier of the one who places their faith in Jesus Christ. Job, does not, Job cannot look down the corridor of time and, and have any clue as to how God is going to pull this off, how he's going to declare righteous those who put their faith in Jesus, and how also that Jesus will be this, this perfect living sacrifice that makes atonement on the cross. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know how he's going to, to eventually bring everything into account. God is telling Job, I'm alone and able to do these things, and because I am God, I'm going to do these things perfectly. You don't have the power or the knowledge or the wisdom. And then verse 14, if you could do all that, if you could, if you could perfectly administer justice and bring evil and, and all the demons and Satan and, and wickedness, if you could take care of all that, well, then I would acknowledge that you can save yourself by the power of your own arm. But you're not. You're not able to do any of those things. God is saying, I alone am able. 
I alone am able to tread down the wicked. I alone am able to bring down the proud. I alone am able to deliver perfect judgment to everyone who deserves judgment. I alone have the power and the strength and the knowledge to defeat even death and the devil himself. Now, speaking of perfect justice and bringing end to evil, Behemoth Leviathan. We've got to see the connection. This is not some kind of random illustration tacked on to the end of his answer to the charge of injustice. God doesn't answer the charge of injustice and then say, oh yeah, by the way, Behemoth and Leviathan, I'm able to conquer those two animals as well. That's not what's going on here. These two illustrations are part of the answer to Job's charge of injustice. So first, the behemoth, verses 15 through 25. So this is the rest of chapter 40, and then the Leviathan is all of 41. So this is it. This is the last time we're going to hear from God uh, in, in in this address. When it comes to understanding 40 and 41, the behemoth and Leviathan... They have to be correctly identified. We want to understand this passage, so we have to correctly identify these two creatures. There are two main camps, and I'm going to give you both of them, and I'm going to lay out the case for which one I believe is correct. Camp number one, they are meant to be understood as actual animals. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've gone through Job before. Maybe you've gone through a study or read something and they've showed you that, that, yeah, here are these two creatures and they've tried to identify them. Typically, the behemoth is identified as a hippopotamus and the leviathan is a crocodile or an alligator. So with this naturalistic understanding, the hippo and the croc are offered up as examples of fearsome animals that the average person would not ever dare attempt to approach. But God, in his might and power, has no trouble subduing. That's, that's the naturalistic approach. There are problems with this understanding. I'm going to give you five. There are maybe more than that, but I'm going to give you at least five. Number one, the naturalistic approach feels like unnecessary repetition. Unnecessary repetition. If you remember from chapter 39, God has just gotten done answering Job's first charge by pointing to several animals. He included a lot of these. Remember verse 39? Actually, the end of 38, there was the lion, the raven, uh, the wild ox, the uh, wild donkey, the eagle, the, the hawk, the horse. We had lots of animals. A long list. Why do we need a second speech that includes more regular animals? In fact, if we count these two creatures as actual animals, it almost seems like an afterthought. He lists all these animals, and then at the end, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, oh yeah, uh, Behemoth and Leviathan. It seems like unnecessary repetition. Also, we kind of covered that with the ox and the war horse. Remember chapter 39? The ox and the war horse were both depicted as these exceedingly strong wild animals. They were unable to be tamed or subdued by Job. Remember, that was the point of the wild ox. Can you make him pull your plow and, and, and work for you? And of course, the implied answer was, no, but you can, God. 
So God's already made that point. Why would we need to do it again? They don't really add anything. So it's unnecessary repetition. Number two, the naturalistic approach does not get a point across. It doesn't get a point across. If these two creatures are actual animals, either a hippo and a croc, or maybe even an extinct animal, like a dinosaur or a dragon, then the point is that God is great because he can conquer these animals. But these animals don't really communicate God's greatness or superiority. Look, verse 24, can anyone take him by the eyes? In other words, can anyone capture the hippo? Um, yes, they can. Verse 7, can anyone fill the crocodile's skin or the, or the dinosaur's skin or whatever you want to make it out to be? Uh, can they fill his head with harpoons and his fishing spear and fishing spears? In other words, can anyone kill this animal? Yes, actually, we can. Um, the whole argument that these are terrifying creatures that no one can defeat falls completely apart because we remember that people have been subduing and killing these animals for thousands of years. They've been doing this since ancient times. Hippopotamus hunting was an Egyptian pastime. They used to do it all the time. We, make, we, we skin them and make boots out of them. We have them captured and, and subdued in cages. We go to the zoo and look at them and eat popcorn. The, yes, these are big animals, but they're not too terrifying that people can't kill them or capture them. In other words, if we can do it, then it's really not that impressive if God can do it. So it doesn't get a point across. Number three, the naturalistic approach does not really answer the question about God's justice. Remember, this is part of the answer. Job's charge was that God is unjust. How can God capturing or taming or killing an actual animal help answer the charge that God is unable to administer perfect justice? It doesn't. So it doesn't answer a question. Number four, the naturalistic approach is ultimately unsatisfying. This whole book has been slowly building up to this crescendo point. We've heard Job speak. We've heard Job's friends speak. We've heard Elihu speak, the preparatory prophet. And now finally we're hearing God speak. And in his first answer, he delivered this incredible, brilliant, holistic answer that spoke to us on so many levels. And to, to Job and to us about these ultimate questions of, of suffering and evil. And then finally, the pinnacle of the book, the final God speech. And God speaks, and he says, I am stronger than a hippopotamus. <laughs> and it's just unsatisfying. It, it doesn't seem to go where, where everything has been pointing. And it really doesn't help. And it doesn't satisfy Job at all. Finally, the naturalistic approach does not explain Job's response to the final God speech. Now, Lord willing, Lord willing, when we get to this next week in chapter 42, Job says he hears God, he sees God, and then he repents of his speech and accusing God of injustice. How does, declaring that, how does, how does God declaring that he's stronger than a hippo and a crocodile or any other natural animal, cause Job to claim that he now sees God and brings Job to a point of repentance? The answer is, it doesn't. So I would caution us against from viewing these things as natural creatures and animals. So that's camp number one. Camp number two, they are meant to be understood symbolically. First of all, remember, we are in poetic language territory. 
whenever you see the Bible and it sets it off in these nice stanzas with, with indentation like that, that, that's a red flag saying, hey, this is poetry. We see this in the Psalms. We see this in Song of Solomon. Uh, we see this in Proverbs. That's poetic literature. Later on in chapter 42, that last section, that's narrative. Where it's just these nice double columns in your Bible. So first of all, we're in poetic language. A lot of symbolism in poetic language. But also, remember the context, verses 9 through 14. What we just looked at, what was God saying? Right before Behemoth and Leviathan, God was saying, I alone am able. I alone am able to administer perfect justice. I alone have the power and the knowledge to perfectly punish and judge the wicked. Whatever the Behemoth and Leviathan are, they have to be the ultimate expression ultimate example of something that only God can subdue and conquer. These two illustrations are intended to be understood symbolically as representations of death and the devil, respectively. Behemoth, death, Leviathan, devil. I alone am able to subdue and conquer behemoth, death. I alone am able to subdue and conquer Satan himself, the great Leviathan. This is a much more satisfying answer than I am stronger than a hippo, or I can wrestle a crocodile. We've seen that. You can watch a YouTube video on that. Okay? This is much more satisfying. It makes sense, it fits, and it answers the question of injustice. It answers the question. It speaks powerfully to Job's personal situation as well. Evil and wickedness will not allow be allowed to go unchecked God will bring final justice and judgment on even our most powerful enemies. Why? Because he's bigger and stronger than those enemies. It's how we're supposed to understand the passage. So now let's go and look at Behemoth 15 through 24. The Behemoth, remember, is a symbolic embodiment of death and the power of death. First of all, Behemoth, the word, is derived from the word Behemoth. Behemoth means animal or beast, some kind of unspecified animal. It's not anything specific like an ox or a cow or something. It's just animal. Behemoth, in the Hebrew, it has the plural ending, but it's not pluralizing the word. In other words, it's not saying many beasts. It's saying this is something greater than, than a beast. In fact, it serves to intensify the word. It's been called a plural of majesty a plural of intensification. So it could be translated as beast of beasts, or as some people have said, super beast. So that alone, just the name of the creature, should, should give us a clue. Hey, this isn't talking about a normal animal. This is intended to communicate a larger-than-life creature that is symbolic, and in this case, symbolic of death. There are parallels between this super beast and the regional Canaanite god of death. Remember, Canaan was the, the land, the promised land. This is the land that under military leadership of Joshua, the Israelites came in and conquered and inherited. This was the promised land. So that land, Canaan, had a regional god of death called Mot. So Mot uh, and, and this behemoth have many similarities. For example, Mot consumes vegetation. The behemoth is described in verse 15 as eating grass like an ox. Mot is described as strong and powerful. Behemoth, again, described in verse 16 and 18 as strong and powerful, strength and muscles. Mot is described as living in a watery place. The behemoth is described in verse 21 and 23 as living in a watery place. 
Now somebody might say, mm, okay, I, I guess I can see there's some parallels there, but I don't know, this connection seems kind of weak. Seems like we're trying to rush and make this symbolic when we don't really need to. That's because we don't live in the ancient Near East. If we did, we would be very accustomed to speaking of evil and death and chaotic forces that are aligned against God and His good created order in terms of symbolic creatures. Very common. In fact, it was the default understanding in the ancient Near East. Old Testament scholar Eric Orland states that it would have been natural for Job and ancient Israelite readers to understand the behemoth and Leviathan as being used symbolically and not literal animals. He goes on to say, quote, unless it were signaled clearly otherwise, unquote, these two animals would not have been understood as actual physical animals. The people in that culture did not speak of, of evil and, and death in, in, in kind of clinical, descriptive terms. They didn't, they didn't think of death and evil like we might describe it, like a, like a theological textbook using... Um, you know, logical connections and proof texts and statements, they would have thought in terms of symbolic creatures. Likewise, the same thing with death. They wouldn't have talked about it in clinical terms or medical terms of you know, how do you define death. They would have used symbolism. In fact, we still kind of do this today. There, we, we talk about the Grim Reaper. Well, there is no such thing as a Grim Reaper, but we understand that's symbolic for death. Or the ferryman to pay a fee and he takes you from you know, the land of the living to the land of the dead. We've heard of these things. They're symbolic descriptions of death and evil. That's how they would generally talk about these things. And that's how they would have understood this. Uh, for example, we have, we have multiple biblical examples, but we can go to a couple right here in Job. Job 7.12, Job said, Am I a sea or a sea monster that you would set guard over me? In that verse, Job is asking God, Am I evil? Am, am I the sea or a sea monster? Am I, am I the embodiment or am I, am I an expression? Or am, I, am I an evil entity that you would have to set guard over me and watch me? That's what he's asking and he's using symbolic language. In ancient mythology, the sea and sea monsters are large creatures that inhabited it were viewed as a source of evil and chaos. The sea was actually deified and thought to stand against all other pagan gods. Job 9.13, God will not turn his back in anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Rahab was this mythological, symbolical creature of, of evil. That's how they thought of these things. It's not just the Bible, other ancient extra-biblical or, or outside the Bible sources have creatures and animals symbolizing death, evil, and chaotic forces. For example, there's an Egyptian god of death that has a head of a jackal. Maybe you've seen pictures of these in ancient Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics. There's an Egyptian god of death uh, with the head of a jackal. There's one that's in the form of a lion. Another god of the afterlife that's thought of in terms of a giant snake. So this whole point is to show that in the ancient Near East, they wouldn't normally talk about these things in, in defined terms, like in textbook language. They would have thought about symbolism. And when they heard the term behemoth, super beast, especially in this context where God is talking about defeating evil, they would have understood that God was using a description of a larger-than-life creature to symbolically represent, in this case, death. 
And we see a little bit more of that in 21 and 22. The super beast who is strong and can't be killed lies in the shadows waiting for its time to act. No one, of course, can kill death. It's always there. We don't normally talk about and think about death until it comes for us, but it's always there in the shadows. Verse 23, the super beast behemoth stands firm in the rushing waters. In other words, nothing can shake death. Nothing can, can defeat death. Death is, comes for all people um, at one point or another. So 40, 15 through 25 is not talking about a literal hippopotamus or any other physical creature. It's a symbolic embodiment of death. And God is telling Job, I am able to conquer even death. The behemoth, I alone am more powerful than death. Then we go to 41, Leviathan. Leviathan means sea monster or sea dragon, and we have even more evidence to take this as symbolic. Uh, Larger than life creature. Chapter 41 is not talking about a crocodile or an alligator or a dragon or a dinosaur. It's a symbolic embodiment of Satan. And the Bible even confirms this for us. We look at Isaiah 27.1. This is referring to Christ and his return when he will inflict punishment on his enemies. And using poetic language, Isaiah describes how God will powerfully subdue Satan. And he calls Satan... Leviathan, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. You see, and that's just one word. There's lots of multiple words. Leviathan, dragon, fleeing serpent. It's all talking about the same thing. Satan, symbolic language. Revelation 12 also uses symbolic language to describe Satan. Revelation 12, 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And of course, we can remember all the way back in Genesis. What form did Satan appear as when he spoke to Eve? It was a snake. So the behemoth is death, Leviathan is Satan. Now, chapters 40 and 41 make complete sense. And what a climactic ending to the book of Job. God declares that he and he alone is able to execute perfect justice. He has the power and the knowledge to save his people and punish the wicked. And he tells Job, using symbolic language, that he exercises sovereign power over death, the super beast, that no one can control, tame, or defeat. But the capstone piece of the God's speeches, the grand finale, is chapter 41. God is victorious over Satan. I want us to be sure we understand what's going on here. What is is God saying in 41? If we look back at the first part, look at verses 1 through 4 of 41, and we see a bunch of, what? Challenge questions. You remember back these from from the two chapters previously? They were all over the place. God fired these off over and over. And they were designed to teach Job that God is greater than man. Remember? Can you do this? And Job was forced to answer, no, but you can, God. Over and over again, he was faced with these challenge questions. Well, here they are again. Except this time, they are directed to Job asking him about Satan himself. 
the great Leviathan. Verse 2, can you put a rope in his nose? In other words, can you capture him? No. Verse 3, will he plead with you to let him go? No. Verse 5, will you put him on a leash? In other words, can you set limits to, to Satan's activity? No. Verse 7, can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? In other words, can you destroy Satan? And of course, Job is forced to answer, no, I cannot, but you can, God. And then in verse 8 through 10, God points out the hopelessness of anyone who thinks they can successfully engage Satan in battle. No one can hope to defeat Satan in the power of sin. Verse 9, behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. This is saying if we could have our eyes open to see the spiritual world, if it, was, if it were possible to lay eyes on Satan, we would simply fall down and fall apart in utter terror. That's how strong and big our enemy is. Verse 10, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. No one can pick a fight with the devil and win. No one. It is impossible. It doesn't matter how tough we are, how, how, how in shape or in strong we are. Forget it. You cannot take on Satan and win. And then in verse 10b, who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. No one on earth can stand before Satan and the power of sin but God says, I can. I am able. I am bigger and I am stronger than your most powerful enemy. I alone am able. I am greater than Satan. I am stronger than sin. I am over all things. So what God is saying, the real question is, who can stand before me? I, I can defeat all the enemies, including death, including Satan. Therefore, who can stand before me? I am the strongest and the biggest. And then in verse 12, I will not keep silent concerning his limbs or his mighty strength. And he goes on to talk about his teeth, armor plating, fire and flame, strong neck, hard heart, held a sword or any other earthly weapon, arrow club, javelin, spear, they can't damage him. He continues to describe the power of Satan. Now, now why does God do that? Why, why does God continue to describe the, the powerful, terrifying nature of this greatest enemy of ours after verse 11, or starting verse 11? Because verse 10 seemed to be a good stopping point. Didn't, didn't that seem like kind of like the high point? You know, I, I can do all this. I enable. Behold, I am God. Oh, and, and then, uh, however, I will not keep silent concerning this enemy. Why does he do that? It's for Job. That's for Job. God has said, I am God, I am greater than you, Job, I am greater than Satan, but I will acknowledge, for your sake, just how terrifying this enemy is. I, I don't want you to think that I'm disconnected from what you're going through. I want you to know, Job, that I understand better than anyone else exactly what has been happening over these last few months. I know this was painful for you. I and I alone know just how terrifying this monster is. I know he's been inflicting pain on you. I know the suffering and the terror and the fear and the hopelessness and the despair and the loss that this enemy 
can, can deal to a human. I have not forgotten you because I know just how deadly and dangerous he is. And then the speech abruptly ends, 33 and 34. On earth there is no creature, not, there is not like his creature, a creature without fear. He sees everything out that, that is on high. He is king over all the sons of pride. This, once again, should remove any idea that we think that this is some kind of dragon or crocodile or earthly, like a physical animal. He is king over all the sons of pride. That's Satan. No question about it. John 12, 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show that what kind of death he's going to die, meaning lifted up on the cross. But you see that language, the ruler of this world. Maybe if you're like me, you remember reading this as, as a child in the NIV, prince of the world. Maybe you heard it that way. Ruler of the world, prince of the world. That's Satan. God is greater than Satan, but Satan is more powerful than any man alone on earth. Let's not think for a minute that we don't have a powerful or a big or a strong enemy. We do. And Satan has been given, given limited reign over the world. Well, how much? Well, enough for Jesus to call him the prince of the world. So, quite a bit. Quite a bit. And then finally, John 8, Jesus talked about how all people are divided into one or two groups, either children of God or children of the devil. That's also a synonym for sons of pride. So again, this is Satan. He's over all the sons of the pride, so children of the devil, those who have not been regenerated, those who are not among the elect, those who do not have faith in Christ. And then it ends, which means God abruptly ends his speech. What does this mean for Job? We've got to tie up that loose end. This answer teaches Job that God alone is powerful enough to bring down every wicked, prideful person, even death and Satan himself. God alone is able to deliver perfect justice. This is an answer to Job's charge. Job had thrown up his hands and concluded that God doesn't make any distinction. Uh, from more, this is Job saying, well, from my perspective, it, just, it looks like it's a free-for-all. It doesn't really make any difference. God is not able to deliver Perfect justice. This is Job 9.22. These are his words. It is all one. Therefore I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. This answer in 40.41 is God saying, no, but I do make a distinction. Job. I, I, I do not treat everybody the same. I am bringing perfect justice in its time. But this answer goes even further because it shows Job that even death and the devil are subject to God. Satan is the prince of this world, but not forever. This teaches Job and us that there is no yin-yang. There, there is no cosmic battle. There, there is no some sort of kind of uh, um, cosmic arm wrestling match where, where you know Satan is kind of winning and, and, and then all of a sudden God powers back and he's winning for a while and we're just going to have to wait and see how this whole thing ends. No, 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 no. It's over. Satan doesn't have a chance. God teaches that Job, God teaches Job that he is Lord over death and the devil himself. Satan, as powerful as he is, is on God's leash. He is a created creature. 
Finally, this answer shows Job that it has been the devil who has been the one tormenting Job all along. It's been Satan, not God, who has been attacking Job this whole time. And remember, Job had attributed his pain and suffering to God. Here are his words, Job 13, 24. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. Now Job knows, no, that wasn't God. That was the great dragon, Leviathan. That was Satan that was against me. God was never his enemy. God was always with Job and for Job. God never had torn Job or hated him or gnashed his teeth at him. It was Satan all along. Yes, God was the sender, but God was not the agency. It was not the the hand of God that was striking Job. It was the hand of Satan doing that work. It was the devil himself terrifying Job and taking delight in inflicting pain and suffering. Not God. God was always there with him and for him still on his side, defending him and protecting him. And, and Job realizes now, if it weren't for God restraining this great dragon, I would have been destroyed completely. God was there, superintending the whole process. God was there watching Job's, Job's trial unfold with compassion. God alone is able. God is still the only one able to have power over death, death and Satan. Job could not save himself, and neither can we. We need someone who is bigger and stronger than our big and strong enemies, death and the devil. And it is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now on this side of the cross, we can see. Now we do know how God has vanquished our enemy. We do know how God has achieved the victory. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ. I want us to look at these challenge questions, a couple of them, and see how they apply to Jesus. Job 41.2, can you put a rope in his nose? In other words, can you capture him? Can you bind the devil? Matthew 12, 28-29, Jesus said, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? That's Jesus doing the binding. The strong man is Satan, a powerful enemy, but Jesus is stronger. Can you bind Satan? No, but Jesus did. How about 41.3? Will he make many pleas to you? In other words, will he beg you to let him go? Luke 8, 30 and 31, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Will demons beg you? No, but they beg Jesus. God alone is able. It is Jesus who has achieved victory over behemoth and Leviathan, over death and the devil. By way of the cross and his resurrection, Jesus is the one who has done what no one else can do. Jesus put a rope in his nose and pierced his jaw with a hook. Jesus filled Satan's skin with harpoons and his head with spears. Jesus stripped off his outer garment and bridled his power. Jesus took on the prince of this world and defeated him. It's Jesus. Jesus is bigger and stronger than our enemies. Hebrews 2.14 says, Through death he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. 
Jesus is more powerful than Satan himself. We've heard of cage matches, right? Maybe we've seen a depiction of this in some kind of post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie where there's a, there's a bunch of uh, survivors and there's this big cage and they're all chanting, two go in, one come out, or something like that. And then these two opponents go in and there's a fight to the death and then one emerges and they're, they're the victor. Jesus was in a cage match with death and the devil and Jesus emerged. Jesus beat death. Jesus beat the devil. So here's the ultimate question, the ultimate challenge question for us. Can you do that? Can you beat death? Can you beat the devil? And we're forced to answer, no, but Jesus did. And then we are directed to put our faith in him. Jesus is the victor. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, I don't want you to miss this message. Only God can save people from their sin because only God is big enough and strong enough to defeat the enemies of death and Satan himself. The power of sin. I don't want anyone to walk away thinking, I'll be okay. No, you will not. You will not be okay. If you're not in Christ, you're one heartbeat away from eternity in hell. You are not strong enough, you are not big enough to defeat those two enemies. Only Jesus has done that. All that terrifying descriptive language about the Leviathan, all, the, all those challenge questions to Job at the beginning of 41, those are designed to teach us the hopelessness of even attempting to take on the power of sin, death, and Satan on our own. We will simply fall down in terror. There's no way we can win. I want us to listen to what God is saying. He's saying, you can't do it, but I have done it. You can't beat Satan, death, and sin. You cannot save yourself. God would direct us back to 4014. If you can do all that, if you think you're strong enough and big enough to defeat Satan and the devil, well then I will acknowledge that you have the power to save yourself. But, of course, we don't. We have to look to the one who's bigger and stronger. Ephesians 1.13, and we'll close with this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Now this is the Apostle Paul recounting to the church how it was that they were saved. He's asking them to remember back. And he said, when you heard, and that's because God has taught us, faith comes from hearing. We hear the word of God proclaimed. We hear it read. When you heard what? The gospel. This is God's disclosure about how sinful people like you and me can be made right with God. How, how God deals with our sin problem. And he has done that through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus lived this, this perfectly righteous life. We are, we're sinners. No, we're not perfect. We are sinners. We have sin in our heart. We have original sin. We, we stand condemned under the headship of Adam. And, and we also have a multitude, piles upon piles of sin that we commit every day. Jesus has none of that. Jesus has that perfect record of righteousness that God requires and he willingly went to the cross, and on the cross he took the wrath of God. We don't know how this is possible. It's possible because he's divine. 
He is not merely a man. He is both fully man and fully God. He took the wrath of the sin of every single one of the elect on himself in, that, in those hours on the cross. He, he took and received the wrath and then his blood was an acceptable payment. He made it to home. Atonement means a covering for our sin on the cross. And of course, then he went into the cage match. He, beat, he died, and then he rose victoriously. He beat death. He came out. He won, and because of that, he now has ascended, and he is returning again soon to bring judgment. God has said, look, here's the gospel. The good news is when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus in faith and believe upon him, he will not, he will not count your sin against you. He will count that as forgiven, and he will impute or credit the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to you, and you will be made right with God. Your greatest enemies will be defeated in Christ. And then it says, and believed in him. That's that believing, the trusting in Jesus Christ. It's not simply going home and saying, well, I think I believe in Jesus. It's, it's this, it's, it's genuine saving faith. It's a work of God that produces a new heart in us that can actually convicts us of our sin and draws us to himself irresistibly. It gives us a new heart, new desires. We want more and more of God, who is our Savior. God alone is able. Satan is a powerful enemy, but Jesus is more powerful. He is bigger and he is stronger. Jesus alone is able to save people from their sins. He is bigger and stronger than sin, death, and evil, the devil, and even the devil himself. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, which you speak powerfully to us. We thank you that you have answered this charge of injustice, but in the process of answering that, you've shown us your glory, you've shown us your power, you've, cho- you've shown us your ability to defeat our greatest enemies. And Father, we're also grateful that we, we live in the time that we do, that we have been shown the object of our faith, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. You have shown us how he has defeated sin, how he has defeated death and and the devil. Father, we thank you for our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are our champion, stronger and bigger than our greatest enemies. Amen. Amen.